0: Well, the Sunday after Christmas. Wild things are going on. Uh, that also means that the youth pastor is preaching today. Uh, it's the Sunday after Christmas. So, <laughs> j- <laughs> joke's on you. <laughs> so, welcome. Merry Christmas. I hope it was good for you. Uh, just, so, just so you can, we can just kind of get this part out of the way. Um, like I, approximately a billion other people, In, uh, on the planet, Uh, I was a little under the weather earlier this week, and all that's left is my voice is like barely here, right? So that's that's all that's left. So uh, if it goes out mid-sermon, if it's just like done, I will film the rest of the sermon and send it to you individually later. (laughs) No, I won't. We'll just end it right there. We'll just just call it. We'll sing some songs. All right. So Advent is over. The season of Advent has, has come to an end. And we are, and, and Advent, the, the theme of Advent is, we're waiting, we're waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, and we're looking ahead this week to Epiphany. Epiphany is, 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 is about to arrive, but this Sunday is this strange little season in the church calendar called Christmas. So uh, it's this strange little like pit stop right before we get to Epiphany, um, Epiphany is this season that's about, uh, I mean the word would be revelation, but don't think about like Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. If you know that reference, I'm so sorry, <laughs> uh, but it, it's, not, it's not that, it's more like um, something is being revealed. Epiphany is a, a time where we learn something about ourselves about our world, about um, the, the God that we follow. and But Christmas is like not that. It's something else. It's not waiting, and it's not this, this fresh revelation. It's something else. It's like a pit stop between the seasons. This morning we read our text, which is Luke 2, 22 through 40. And I, you have to ask yourself when preparing a talk for this kind of sermon why would the early church fathers and they were fathers why would the early church people who put assembled the church calendar why would they pick this text luke 2 22 through 40 why would they slot that on this sunday in between these two seasons why would that be important so let's take a look at the text chapter 22 or 2 verse 22 when the time came for their purification According to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, this new baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so Luke chapter 2 when you look at it, is broken into two parts, two big buckets, okay? The birth of Jesus and the story of the shepherds is right at the beginning of of Luke chapter two. And the second half is Jesus being presented at the temple. And the second part, so let's like throw away the first part, Jesus being born, that already happened. But the second part of Luke two is further broken into two parts, okay? There's the story of a man named Simeon and the story of a woman named Anna, These two characters stick out to me as I am reading the text, right? They are are Simeon and Anna, these strange characters that, that pop into the scene. And as we just read, Jesus is brought to the temple, as a good Jewish family does, in accordance with the law. And he's presented as any other poor child in Israel. Especially a poor child from the rural and devout, some would might say radical, area of Galilee. However, in the following verses, we have you know, Simeon and Anna float into the scene. They meet the Christ child and then react to the presence of the Messiah. And it's this just, just interesting little text. Let's begin. Uh, verse 25. <clears throat> now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel... ...and the Holy Spirit rested, upon, rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So Simeon is looking forward to, you know, this is like an Advent story here. It's right in between. Looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And so here thematically, you know, Advent is brought into the text and we're beginning to see why this text is slotted between Advent and Epiphany. But let's unpack this phrase, the consolation of Israel, uh, because it's going to get wild. All right, for the consolation, like that phrase, is a well-known phrase all throughout the New Testament, and it comes from the Greek word paraklesis. This word is used a lot, in re- and it has a, a range of meanings, but it's used a lot to talk about the Holy Spirit and the action of the Holy Spirit with the people of God, okay? So let, I want to actually list the meanings that I was you know, I didn't, I, I found them and I wrote them down for you. So here you go. One, um, a calling near, a summons, especially for help, an exhortation, admonition, encouragement, consoling and comforting, persuasive discourse, stirring address, a powerful oratory discourse. And so the idea is that Simeon is looking for the calling near of Israel, the encouragement of Israel the comforting of Israel, and some sort of powerful discourse or address to propel Israel forward, and for us this morning, into the season of Epiphany. Okay. So, one other thing, because I think this is really weird, and I think you probably do too. I want to point out the strange part. Apparently, Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And this will be important after we discuss the end of Simeon's story. The Holy Spirit said, you're not going to die until you see the arrival of the Messiah. Verse 27, guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Okay, so Simeon sees the Messiah, grabs the child. Come on, Simeon. You don't do that. You ask permission first. I've learned this. I have a kid now. And people are like, here, let me hold your kid. And I'm like, who are you? Where's my kid going? Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, And then Uh, Simeon worships God, announcing to the surrounding crowd, this baby is the Messiah, the one we have been waiting for. So what's interesting to me about the story is that the story is doing two things at the same time. On the one hand, Simeon announces that he recognizes the Messiah. And two, Simeon realizes now that that he could die. In one moment, both things exist. And yet he seems to embrace this newly acquired mortality <laughs> with uh, celebration and announcement. So when I was young, I don't know about you, but when I was young, I thought, maybe because of all of the pictures, uh, when I was young, I thought, of course he's, like, he's, embr- of course he's embracing death. He's old. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. Uh, when I was young, I was like, he's old. He's, he's like ready to die. But now as I read back through the text, there's shockingly no mention at all of Simeon's age. We don't don't have any clue. And I, I feel that's kind of significant. We have no idea how old this person is. I think the text is trying to push us to the reality that Simeon is in some sense the focus of the text. But he's not the focus of this part of the story. The Messiah is the focus here. Simeon is simply announcing to the reader who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will become. And when the Messiah arrives, when you see the Messiah, it's not just bigger, better, faster, stronger. Like, the Messiah is here. Let's go. The future of the Messiah and the future of the people that draw near to him includes within it a death. Simeon now will die. It's in the same moment. Okay, so... Quick history stuff. If you are Bible nerdy, you will like this. If you are not, I, I wish you could time travel, but here we go. Um, Jesus was born into Israel during a specific time and a specific place, okay? There, there are particulars. About 200 years before the birth of Christ, about, Israel revolted against the Roman Empire under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. The Maccabean Revolt was a great moment in Israel's history where the rural outsiders, laid siege to Jerusalem and drove the Romans out and they recaptured the throne for the people of God. Uh, The event is commemorated by Hanukkah, um, which I'm sure you're all aware of. Again, this event happened 200 years roughly before the birth of Christ and so 200 years before our story of Simeon and Anna. Um, and so, if you think of it, Simeon's great-grandfather or grandfather might have f- like fought in the revol- revolt or at least knew someone who had a story about it. And two, Because 200 years seems like a long time, especially if you're young in the room. 200 years seems like forever ago. But it would be like the Civil War to us today, roughly, which started you know, in 1861. You might not believe me, but, especially if you're young in the room, events from 200 years ago are quite relevant today, especially if what happened was never properly dealt with spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and legally, to make sure we make continual efforts over a long period of time to remember the injustices done and make efforts to reconcile and prevent history from repeating itself. Amen? Amen. Luke is very aware of this history. Like Luke is very aware as Luke is writing. Um, the book of Luke is aware of this of history of the Maccabean revolt. Simeon is very aware of this history as he is announcing the Messiah. And Luke says that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel a calling near, exhortation, comforting, and a persuasive discourse, a stirring address to send Israel forward. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child... I don't know why, I just... I don't remember this part when I was reading it. This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So the falling and rising of many in Israel, a sign, the Messiah, a sign that will be opposed, a sword... This is like straight-up revolutionary language that Simeon is just like saying about this little baby. The story of Simeon announcing the Messiah to the reader is not like this fun happy time, right? It's joyous because God is acting, but it means conflict is coming. Both are in the same moment. Okay, so let's get to Anna. Anna, so... Anna is the second part of the text, and it's the part that I really want to focus on this morning. Um, That was all intro. We have a two-hour sermon, so. (laughs) Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age. So, things are about to get weird. So, if you can buckle up with me, things are about to get weird. Anna is a prophet. Just straight up, like, Anna's a prophet. The text says it. Um, the label prophetess, which is a terrible name, uh, better, I guess you would say, is a woman prophet. I like just prophet. I don't know. is attributed fi- to five women in the Old Testament. There are stories in the New Testament, but five women in the Old Testament. And they have no distinct role from their male counterparts. There's nothing that's, like, distinct about them um, other than to the, to, the, to the guys. They're just ordinary old prophets. It's like the dudes. They're just ordinary old prophets. Miriam? Deborah, Hulda, my favorite name, Noadiah—I don't even know who that is—but like, I love that name, Noadiah, and the prophetess. It's like this unnamed person, the prophetess in Isaiah. Luke, though, in the New Testament, specifically mentions that Anna is the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Okay, uh, you could easily mention the tribe that every person's kind of from, probably in the text. Luke specifically is like, hey, Anna is the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. That seems like it maybe should cue something for us. So who is this Anna? And what is she doing in the text symbolically, narratively, um, literally, what's she doing in the text? So we already have this random person named Simeon at the top of the text announcing the Messiah and what that means. But what purpose does Anna serve? Like, it can't be just to reiterate what Simon said. Hey, that's the Messiah. The Bible doesn't really do that. If it wants to reiterate something for you to where you really get it, it repeats it three times. We actually sang a song this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is two times, which means there's something about Anna that's happening that's different than Simeon, but they're, like, related to each other. You with me? Okay, cool. Um, So let's start with a little anecdote that she is from the tribe of Asher that might not mean much to you, didn't really mean much to me. But to a Jewish reader, that is, that is, uh, uh, that is pretty directly referencing something that is deeply rooted in Jewish culture and history. Um, there is a f- very famous daughter of Asher. Her name is Serach Asher, uh, also called Sarah or Sarah. So follow me, this is, this is gonna get wild. Here's what we know of, of Sarah. Everything mentioned about her comes from the rabbinical writings in the Midrash. So, in other words, she doesn't show up in the scripture directly, although Genesis 46-17 lists Sarah among the 70 members of Jacob's family who went to Egypt, but, she's, but she is taught to Jewish boys and girls as a key figure in Jewish history. And so the Midrash claims, this extra kind of book that is commentary on, on Torah, Midrash claims that Sarah is the daughter of Asher, and Asher is one of the 12 sons of the patriarch, patriarch named Israel. Uh, Israel is the artist formerly known as Jacob. Got a name change, okay? Jacob was, was renamed to Israel when he had a dream and either prevailed over God or struggled with God in a dream, however you want to read it. That's a different sermon. So let's get into why this Anna of the tribe of Asher might be a reference to something extremely mysterious. Very weird. So Tamar Kadari, the dean of the Schechter Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, just there, I I wanted to say that just so you know I'm not out here on an island, uh, says that the rabbis wrote in the Midrash that Sarah lived to an extremely old age and and accordingly was blessed with much earthly wisdom and knowledge, which she used to help the people of Israel as needed, even during the time of the rabbis. Sarah, Sarah, is this character that pops in and out of Jewish history at exactly those momentous moments to steer Israel in the right direction. Uh, She is a working-class prophet who avoids the limelight but shows up at pivotal moments in history to go, that's the way we should go, we should listen to this person. She's almost a symbolic character that holds the history of Israel in her memory. In her lived experience. She doesn't have schooling, but rather she, she just lived a long life. A guide that remembers who Israel is and where Israel should go. She's like a, a living almanac of Jewish history. right? You can already see where I'm going. Here's some examples. This, these stories are crazy from the Midrash. Here we go. She is, again, these are stories that aren't found in scripture, but they're the Jewish Jewish people saw Scripture very differently than we do. This is like a book of commentaries and stories that, were, that came out of it and that they were trying to use to teach. That's a really terrible way of explaining it, but here we go. She is Asher's daughter and is, Israel's, is Jacob, Israel's granddaughter. She shows up when Joseph is in Egypt, and she helps convince her grandfather Jacob that Joseph is, that Joseph is the adult Joseph is his son. And if he goes to Egypt, he will be safe. She's the one that's like, hey, you you should do this. She plays the harp from him, too, and comforts him when she loses, uh, when when Jacob loses Joseph. Uh, There's another story that says that that Sarah lived to the time of Moses. Um, So here, in the Midrash, the rabbis work to try to explain how people in the antiquity would know if a prophet was from God or not. I mean, I never really thought about that, but like, how would a, someone know? Like, every, there were false prophets everywhere. So, how would you know, like, that's a good one, that's a bad one, that's a good one, that's a bad one? Um, so, the rabbis wrote that God gave the Israelites a secret code. <laughs> I love this. Um, the rabbis said that God gave Jacob the code so he would know and could lead the people of God. So, you know, you couldn't do a background check on someone. So, if someone came claiming they were from God, they would know the code. And if they said it, Jacob could confirm it. Like, boom, from God. Okay. Uh, The rabbi said God gave it to Jacob. Then he told his 12 sons, one of them being Asher. And Asher told his daughter, Sarah. When Moses came back from the wilderness, after seeing the burning bush, he tried to say he was the one to lead Israel out of Egypt. The people of God did not know if they could trust Moses, for obvious reasons, if you know the story. And until... um, he, Moses said the secret code, and the older Sarah heard it and said, Ask the one. That's the one from God. And so the, the people of Israel, because of her old age and wisdom, were like, well, if she says it, let's go. It's Moses. It's such a cool story. I love that. Um, so you're probably wondering, what is the code? Like, what's the secret code? And I'm not telling you at all. <laughs> I'm not. You're not. I'm not telling you at all. It's a secret. See? Uh, she said to have been. Sarah is said to have been one of the one to tell Moses where Joseph's bones were buried because she was the only one of the generation to still be alive and mourn Joseph's death and remember it. The rabbi said that Sarah not only entered Egypt and left Egypt, but she lived so long she entered the Promised Land. Numbers 26:46 mentions a Sarah, entering the, a Sarah entering the Promised Land. That doesn't mean that's you know, the daughter of Asher. But the rabbis were like, see, there she is. I don't know. There's a name. That's it. The rabbis say that uh, Sarah, the daughter of Asher, lives to see David take the throne in Israel. Okay. In 2 Samuel 2019, David's military commander comes across this very old and wise woman. And the, the woman says, I'm the one of, I am one of those who seek the welfare of the faithful in Israel. And the rabbis were like, that's Sarah. There she is. So, yeah, at this point, Sarah is hundreds of years old, apparently. But here's where things get weird. That's not it. (laughs) The Midrash goes on to claim that that Sarah never died. She joins the pantheon of, of Elijah and Enoch to have been simply taken by God. And they have this story that kind of reveals this idea. After Israel returns from Babylon and they rebuild Israel, there are these teachers of the law fighting about the Israelites leaving Egypt. And, and they're fighting about what the water looked like when it was split. And one of the, the, one of the teachers of the law was like, it was like a net, you see. The water was the shape of a net, and it pulled the water apart. Someone else is like, no, it wasn't like that. It was like this. And the, the rabbis tell the story that, that Sarah pops in and goes, actually, it was like a, a glass, like a window. And they were like, oh, that's it then. That's settled. Boom. It's like glass. Again, strange story, but it's interesting. Let's go back to our text, verse 37. She was very old, Anna, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At the moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. At that moment she came Began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So I'm not saying this is I'm not saying this is Sarah, um, and that Luke is conven- conveniently hiding her identity like a secret. But I mean, I guess it's not crazy to make that claim. We are you know Bible trusting Christians here, and we do believe uh, we're going to in a few weeks celebrate the Transfiguration where Elijah shows up. So it, don't act like I'm the only one who's crazy here. I'm saying that I do think, I do think narratively, Sarah is the tradition, the memory, the memory. The symbolism that Luke is calling on here by writing Anna and mentioning, she's from the tribe of Asher. By writing a random person named Anna as as a prophet, Sarah was, was a prophet who at key moments in Israel's history says, this is the liberator, the one we will follow, Moses. Sarah is the one who knows the secret code, the one to identify who is from God and who isn't, the one who remembers Israel's history, the people's history, the history of Israel's grief. Anna remembers. Not the history of the kings, not the history of the temples, not the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the history from the ground. Sarah's the one who pops in and out of Israel's story to remind the people of God that God notices their grieving. God has noticed you. And while Simeon is announcing that this is the Messiah, the one to console and redeem Israel, the presence of Anna from the tribe of Asher is historically and prophetically confirming it. But I want to talk quickly about how this would have been heard by the surrounding people. This is the season of Christmas, and like this story, it is the beginning moments of our journey to the death and the resurrection of Christ. So, again, why is this story being told right now? Right around the time of the birth of Jesus, I don't know if you've heard the story, but this is, this is wild. Right around the time of the birth of Jesus, around 4 BCE, was one of the most shocking and horrific acts of violence committed by Rome against the people of Israel. It was in the town of Sepphoris, and it was so shocking that liberation theologian Aubrey M. Hendricks, in his book, The Politics of Jesus, makes the claim that it would actually explain the miracles of Jesus. So he says, some might call it demon possession, others might call it catastrophic trauma from the violence of war. In his book, he goes into the psychological literature showing how extreme violence can manifest in the way these people who are called demon-possessed behave. And I'm not going to go into it, but the city of Sepphoris was burned, right? It was burned. And the Romans sold or eliminated 30,000 people living in Sepphoris in a weekend. Some 2,000 people were taken to Jerusalem about 100 miles away just so they could be crucified in a single day by order of Rome. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was three and a half miles from Sepphoris. Historical teacher Ray Vanderlaan says, you could see the smoke from Sepphoris from Nazareth. You could see it happening. Remember the secret code I didn't tell you? Uh, Well, in Hebrew, the words are pakod yafkod. It means God will take notice of you. God will take notice of you. How you would know that a prophet or a Messiah or a liberator was from God was if they said, God will take notice of you. The phrase implies that the hearers are in a state of grief. The nature of the Messiah is not bigger, better, faster, stronger for all the people who have have already been comforted, as the text says. Messiah embraces and includes death into the redemption of the people of God. And so why is this story located between Advent and Epiphany? I think it's because in order to understand Easter where we are all going, we are going to need to remember our grief. Carry it with us. Remember it as we journey to Easter. To forget our troubles. To push it out. To wall it off. To not include it into us is to set us up to miss the Messiah of Easter. The nature of Christ's lordship at the cross and resurrection is not the annihilation of grief. It is the inclusion of it into our lives and story. Sarah, narratively, through the presence of Anna from the tribe of Asher, represents the history of Israel from the underside. She remembers the grief of their history. She lived it. And somehow, this remembering, this lived experience, gives her the authority to recognize the Messiah and tell us this morning, don't fear your grief. This is the Messiah. Don't be afraid. So, But why is it, like, if you've been in redemption for a while, why is it always grief and death and all that? We talk about it all the time, and we talk about Christ and the Messiah, and why can't we just have, like, happy and good time feelings occasionally, you know? Um... And my pastor growing up once told me that most people can't sit in a room and bear witness to someone's grief. It's too much, uh, much less get up the next morning with the possibility of it happening again. A pastor does all of this and then somehow finds something hopeful to say. <laughs> um, so I've witnessed grief three times in my life. Uh, I, I, for me, I have my own stories, and those are very holy, sacred stories to me. Um, but there, I, I have witnessed s- stories. I've been around when somebody is, is really going through something. Um, the first one, I was 23, and I was at Children's Mercy. And I got randomly, a nurse came down and just grabbed me. I was like, you're clergy? I'm like, yes. Uh, I'm 23. Like, can you, can you come in here? This family wants you to pray for their child. It's, it's, it's really bad. And I was like, OK. So I go in. And um, I was in there when, when the, the child passed, and I heard the sound of the mother, and I can't, like, it's right there. Like, I can recall it. I can recall it. When the grief is released, when it overruns the system, there's, like, this rupturing of the person that happens that's hard to explain. It's, like, hard to explain. It's like a force Force rupturing out of them you can feel it I can, it's through time and space like I can feel it today I can, I can hear it it's dare I say holy and I don't mean this to be sentimental I mean this to be revolutionary actually that story I told you and the grief I witnessed was a kind of rupturing of the human person and a revelation of the power of our love The grief that we feel, that we're carrying to Easter, it is in some sense the love that we have. And if you can love, you have the capacity for God. If you can love, you have the capacity for God. So why is it always grief and why is it always, you know, death and these terrible things. It's because Christmas, this one little season, reminds us to recognize the Messiah, the consoler, to recognize the one who has come for the consolation of the people of God. We, we together, maybe not you individually, sometimes it's too much, but together, we carry each other's grief to the cross. Let us pray. God, as we enter into Epiphany and we venture into fresh water again, God, help us hear the announcement of Simeon that the Messiah is here. God, may we trust the Messiah by hearing the echoes of Sarah through the presence of the prophetess Anna. May we hear Anna's announcement that God has taken notice of our grief and has drawn near. May we embody that to each other. May we not fear. May we not fear our grief. God, may we remember our love. And may the power of the love we have received expand our capacity for you, O oh God. Amen. We're going to receive communion together at this time. And we invite everyone who calls on the name of Jesus to join together at this table. The way we'll receive communion this morning is to come forward row by row, starting in the front. And when you come forward, take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and receive it. And when you do, they will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you will say, I will remember. Or amen. But first, let's read the scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. And what the Apostle Paul told the church. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you come?